0: Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Ever said this is a statement that gets thrown around in my house a lot? Have you ever said, "I didn't do that on purpose"? I didn't do that on purpose. All right. So, in my house, in my house, that statement. allows you to do anything you want, okay? You can do anything you want to anybody you want, and as long as you follow it up with like, oops, I didn't do that on purpose, and the other person has to be like, well, I guess it's okay that you just stabbed your brother in the eye, because that's how it works in our life, okay? So have you ever used that statement? You kind of use that statement really to disarm the other person to get out of trouble, right? You're like, well, I know I did something that was wrong or annoying or that I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it on purpose. So I shouldn't get in trouble for it. I shouldn't be punished for it. You shouldn't be angry or upset with me about it. It should just be okay, right? And, uh, and that's true in your, in your family, maybe, right? That might get you out of trouble even at school or the workplace sometimes. That won't hold up in court, right? That, ignorance isn't a defense in court. So if you're like, well, I didn't know I was breaking the law, that really won't hold up. You know, you're still going to be guilty in court. And, uh, and honestly, that doesn't really hold up with the Lord. So if we're like, oh, God, I didn't do that on purpose, that doesn't really hold up. Sometimes our ignorance still carries with it like real consequences. And that's kind of what this series is about, that we would, um, take some responsibility for our lives And start living our lives with more intentionality. Start living our lives on purpose instead of living our lives just by accident or just hoping that good things will work out um, and and be okay in the end, no matter if we know what's coming or not. And so uh, in this series, we're really teaching through our mission statement or our purpose statement as a church. It is, I got it on the screen for you. It's creating a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. And each week we're going to take a different piece that statement, show you where it comes from in God's Word, why we devoted our um, entire existence as a church to this mission, and why I think it's God's mission not just for us as an organization, but for you as a part of that organization, why it's really God's call on your life. It's His purpose for you. It's His intentionality that He wants you to live with. And so today we're going to kind of zero in on this one part, a culture of redemption. So uh, I asked some people before church if they knew what this meant, and, and I'm not sure if anybody did. Maybe Kenny, because he's old. He might have known. But uh, anybody familiar? If I said to you, hey, can we rap for a second? Can we rap for a second? Anybody know what that means? Can we rap for a second? Heather, what's that mean? What? Yeah, can we talk? All right, so that was like a 60s, 70s slang term in the U.S. Hey, can we rap? really meant can we talk can we chat or or talk about something right and nobody uses that anymore in fact a couple of the guys in the front row looked at me like I had you know like I was kind of a weirdo for even saying that right is that is that what you were doing or that's something oh yeah so it's like if you use phrases like that now it's like it make you seem a little strange to people around you somehow that phrase that back in the 60s and 70s was so cool is now super lame and how'd that happen how did something that you once thought was like really cool or like the right thing to say or or a good idea how did it become kind of like obsolete well I kind of thought of three ways this happens I don't have these on the screen but you can jot these down if you want maybe there's more ways than this but I can think of three reasons this week why things that used to be cool to me Kind of became not cool to me at some point. Right? here's reason number one. Uh, I no longer like the way it makes me look, so, or the way it makes me sound, or you know. So uh, I, I can remember. Okay, so I'm gonna show you guys something. You're gonna teach you something in the front row. Okay, when I was your age, Caleb. All right, everybody I knew wore jeans like this. Okay, <laughs> I don't want you taking any pictures of this, posting this anywhere later. But This is how everybody wear their jeans. You all remember. Don, you remember. Don't act like you don't. This is called a tight roll. All right, I'm going to come back here so people in the back can see it too. Brian, you just see. This is called a tight roll. We thought that was so cool. Right? I'm going to do them both so you can see. I, I don't want you. I want you to get the full effect. All right? This is what you thought was going to make girls want to date you. Like, I'm going to tight roll my jeans. They're going to think I'm the man. So you tight roll those things. you Cross them up over like that, roll them about three times. And you, you thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. It's all right, calm down. I'm married. All right. I know this is doing it for some of you, but I'm just saying. Tight roll jeans, that was the thing. And then, uh, you know, in 1989, that was like, whoa, you were the man, you know? And no matter what pants you had on, it could be like jeans, it could be like cargo pants, it could be like a suit. You were tight rolling those bad boys. You thought that was so cool, right? And uh, you know I'm gonna undo that because it's it's so uncool now, Caleb. But I can't even focus, <laughs> so I'm gonna undo that. And then, uh, yeah. And then if you go back even earlier than that, there were people who thought like it was really cool to wear bell bottoms. Now, now you think I know bell bottoms? Are people wear those who say, No, they don't. No, they don't. Not really. Most people they're wearing boot cut. Now, boot cut isn't bell bottoms. Bell-bottoms are pants that are, let me educate you. Let me take you back to the 70s now, you're right. Bell-bottoms are pants that are so wide at the bottom, you can't see your shoe. Look, you walk around looking like you don't even have shoes on. That's a bell-bottom. People thought that was like the best. So you wore those all the time, wherever you went, thinking you were cool. And then somewhere along the way, those kind of went out of style, right? Everybody who's over 40 has seen a picture of themselves as a kid and thought, what was I thinking with my hair? What was I thinking? The rest of you will be doing that someday. You'll be looking back at that picture, that thing on top of your head now. You'll be like, what was I thinking back then? And everybody thought that, you know? You had that perm. Everybody had the perm back in the day, and you can't ever get your hair to go back to the way it used to be the rest of your life. And uh, everybody's got stuff like that. And for some reason along the way, you no longer think it looks good on you. You no longer think it sounds cool. It's like you don't like the way it makes you look or sound anymore. It's reason number one. Reason number two why things that you used to think were cool are no longer cool is that culture around you has changed their opinion about those things. So sometimes there's something you still like. Some of y'all might still be wearing bell bottoms. And you might still tight roll your jeans if everybody out there wouldn't make fun of you for it. And so, because culture changes their opinion about something, you too change your opinion about it. And then the third thing I could come up with was some things, you know, you just kind of mature and grow out of, right? And so, it's like when you're a kid, I, I've said this to many people a lot of times like when these kids are in these classes get released into the wild after church today, and you bring them into this big, wide open room, you know what they do as soon as they get in here? They start running. But somewhere along the way, you grow out of that, because if you're like 50, and you walk into like the library, and you're like, look at this room, and you just start running around, people are going to be upset with you. So something about being a kid, or being a little bit like immature, and kind of free spirit, and fun loving, when you get into a big, wide open room, you just start running, But when you grow up and you mature a little bit, you're like, you know what, I'm going to hurt something. I run around this room, I'll pull a hamstring. I'm I'm not even going to try that anymore. It's like you grow out of it, right? And so it's like things that used to be cool to you are no longer cool to you. This is similar to what we do when we become a Christian. In fact, those three things that kind of change our behaviors in the real world also are similar to what changes our behavior spiritually. We become a Christian, and we, uh, along the way somewhere, we kind of decide, you know what, I don't like the way I've been looking. I don't like the things I've been saying or the way I've sounded. I'm going to kind of change those things a little bit. Or, or maybe the culture around us changes. We get plugged into a whole new crew, and, and that crew is like, hey, I don't talk like that. I don't, I don't kind of think like that. I try not to do those things. And so our opinion changes because their opinion changed. Or sometimes we just really dig into God's word or we get connected and closer to God. And and along the way, he's growing us up to be more and more like Jesus. And as we grow and mature, we kind of grow out of some of the things we used to think were cool to do. And so this is kind of similar in our spiritual life. I mean, if you're a real Christian, not not the kind of Christian that says they're a Christian but doesn't really care about what God thinks, not the kind of Christian who says they're a Christian, but is content just to say, I prayed some prayer, now I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. Those actually aren't real Christians. But I'm talking about the kind of Christian that says they're a Christian and then actually cares about God's opinion, actually wants to change some things about their life that they've, uh, they've seen that are messed up. They actually want to get around a whole new crew. They actually want to grow up in the faith. For those people, these things are pretty similar. And so today I want to, uh, I don't know, kind of talk with you about that idea. Let me show you one passage in the Bible that talks about this concept. And then we'll talk about our mission statement a little bit. But in Romans chapter 13, here's this idea. Because the Bible kind of calls this uh, phenomenon... Uh, it kind of calls it like, I don't know, maturing in your faith or or it compares it to like taking off your old clothes and putting on some new clothes or, or some passages will say like it's leaving behind your old self and you become a brand new self. You, you are kind of outgrowing the way you used to be. So look at me at Romans chapter 13. Let me show you verses 12 and 14. Paul writes, The night is almost over. The day of salvation will soon be here. What's the day of salvation? The day when Jesus will return for those who follow him. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. You see that concept in there, right? When you become a Christian, There's this kind of shedding of the old you and an embracing of the new you. There's the taking off the old dirty clothes and putting on the new righteous clothes, the shiny armor of right living, the the clothe yourself in Jesus's presence and let that change you. And, And you don't become a Christian and instantly become perfect. Oh, God sees you as perfect, but you aren't perfect. You're still just as messed up. And if you were a drunk the day before you gave your life to Jesus, you're a drunk the day after. And if you really struggle with your anger or with your eating habits the day you become a Christian, you're going to probably be struggling with those the next day too. It's a process of God growing you up in the faith, and it takes time. And sometimes it's really hard to see, like watching your kids grow. And you look back after a year or two, and you're like, man, they've really grown a lot. But you can't really see it from day to day. And God is changing you as a Christian just like that. The way you talk, the way you act, the way you think. It's changing, but it's slowly happening. It's a process that has to take place day after day. You take off the old dirty clothes, and you put on some new clothes. Imagine somebody who said, like, well, I changed my clothes three or four weeks ago. You're like, dude, you got to do that every day. Come on, let's change again, you know? That's what being a Christian is like. You come to this first phrase from our mission statement that we're going to talk about today, where we talked about creating a culture of redemption. Now, this phrase, culture of redemption, you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. And so, all the haters that are out there, like, oh, they don't even follow the Bible, you know, whatever, just hang with me for a second. I'm going to show you where we get it from, from the Bible. But this exact phrasing is not anywhere in the Bible, culture of redemption. So, what does it mean? And what does it mean for me personally? What does it actually mean? And then what does it mean to my life? How do I do anything with this truth once I leave here today? That's really what we're going to be talking about today. This concept of a culture of redemption is all over the Bible. It's really rooted in this same concept of of once you become a Christian, you're going to leave behind the old you and you're going to adopt a new you. And the new you is going to be all about this a culture of redemption. This is God's mission, and he's going to recruit you to be part of that mission, a culture of redemption. So let me show you 2 Corinthians. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 most of the time. I want to show you this one passage. There's dozens and dozens of passages all throughout the Bible that reference this concept we're going to talk about today, but I just want to show you one, if I can, It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just read the beginning of this paragraph to you. It's starting in verse 17. It says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. There's that uh, idea we just talked about, right? The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Okay? The beginning of verse 18 says, and all of this is a gift from God. All of this is God's gift to us who brought us back to himself through Christ. In other words, there is no such thing as a Christian who became a Christian because they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, because they cleaned their act up, because they got themselves right with the Lord. No, all of this is a gift from God. Leaving behind the old you, embracing the new you, growing up in the faith, changing your dirty clothes, none of that is because you're so talented or because you're so strong or so wise or because you put in so much effort into the process. No, all of that is a gift from God that he makes available to you, he says, through Jesus Christ, his son. All of it. So this is this concept, right? Now listen to where he's gonna go next because I'm gonna give you today uh, three words. Kenny was making fun of me before church. He was looking at my notes. He said these, he said these words were too, um, too big, like too theological for Carson to know, I think is how he said it. But I have confidence in those guys. They've taken a couple Bible classes now at UC. They know their stuff. And so, uh, but yeah, I'm going to give you three kind of big theological words. One's going to be pretty easy for you because it gets used in culture today a lot. The other two might be a little bit more challenging. We'll define all three of them, and then I want to show them to you in this text. Here's the first one. It's the word reconciliation. The word reconciliation. If you're a note taker, jot that one down. I'm going to give you my definition of these. It may not be a word for word from Webster's Dictionary, but a rec- it's an easy easy ways for me to remember them. Reconciliation. Here it is. You're a big fancy theological word. It just means this: turning enemies into friends. That's it. Just means turning enemies into friends. If you have a friend you get into a fight with or an argument with, or they do something to you, and you uh, one of them apologizes and you forgive and you make up, what do they say? They say you're reconciling, right? Or, or if you're going to get divorced and you go to the courthouse and they want you to fill out this form, why are you getting a divorce? One of the options on the divorce paperwork is like irreconcilable differences. We cannot reconcile our differences. It's this concept of taking all the things that make us enemies and somehow, in spite of those, becoming friends. Turning enemies into friends, reconciling, reconciliation, Right? So now let me show you this concept in the text, and then we'll talk about it again for a second. Look at the second half of verse 18. Paul writes, and God has given us this task, given us who? Who, us? Us, Christians. He's writing to a church. God has given us Christians this task of reconciling people to him. Remember, of turning God's enemies into God's friends. This is our task, our mission, our purpose. Verse 19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So here it is. God is at the business of turning enemies into friends. He's doing that as a gift only through Jesus and what Jesus has done no longer holding our sins against us. It doesn't say we got better or got cleaner or figured it all out. It says he's decided to no longer hold our sins against us because of what Jesus has done. This is the basis of reconciliation, of reconciling. And then he says he's given us this same task, this same mission, to unleash his favor and kindness on those who deserve his wrath and judgment, to find all of those who are the enemies of God and deserve hell, and to communicate to them that there's a better way, that there's a way to receive eternal life, that God wants to be their friend and no longer at war with them, that God wants to unleash his grace and not his wrath on them. It's our job. It's our mission. And so this is reconciliation. And if you're a note taker, I just called this one the mission. Is that that simple? Like this is the mission. And and if there's any other mission, I'm going to show you in God's word, but if there's any other mission, you are living for a lesser purpose. In fact, I would say you're living your life hoping for the best by accident. And this is the only mission that is actually your purpose. And that is damning to most church people because the reality is that most church people don't even think about this when they quantify their Christian experience. They think about how many times they go to church, how much worship music they sing on their own, how they've been reading their Bible what kind of a good person they've been or how many kind deeds they've done. But the concept of taking God's message to the rest of the world is something for missionaries and pastors. But Paul is writing this to a church. This is the purpose. Okay, so he's going to go on. And here's the second big kind of theological word that's going to come up, ambassadors. Now this, you probably know, gets used a lot today, ambassadors. And simply put, an ambassador is just an official representative of a foreign nation. That's it. Still that today. An official representative of a foreign nation. Now listen to how Paul describes it. Let me read the next verse to you, verse 20. He says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You hear this idea? We're the ones who are taking the message of reconciliation to the world. And because of that, we are are God's ambassadors, his official representatives representing a foreign nation. Well, what foreign nation is that? The nation of heaven. Right? We are taking God's message to the rest of the world and saying, We speak for Jesus. Now that's weighty. Because Jesus spoke a lot and a lot of people didn't even believe him. And now I've got to speak for him. So you figure even less will believe me, right? Yeah, probably. But that's my mission. I'm an ambassador, and, and ambassadorship is really the method. You got it? So, so reconciliation is the mission, but being an ambassador is the method that God's going to use to accomplish that mission. Okay, here's the third theological word that's going to come up today, maybe the hardest three. It's propitiation. Now, if you don't have a King James Version of the Bible, you're not going to find that word in your Bible. But it's the word, propitiation. So my simple definition for that word is just righteous satisfaction. If you want to write down a definition, righteous satisfaction, or, or you might say like a sacrificial atonement. You could say that too, maybe. But righteous satisfaction is actually the definition of that word, propitiation. Let me read you where it comes up in this text. The next verse, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to become the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is propitiation. This is the righteous satisfaction for God's anger towards us. That God demands payment and punishment for our behavior, for our disobedience, for our defiance, for our rebellion. God demands justice for it. But Jesus substitutes himself. He sacrifices himself and atones for our sins. He he becomes the righteous satisfaction of everything God should unleash on you and me. Jesus takes our place. God transfers all of our payment and punishment onto Jesus at the cross. And Jesus dies in our place and then rises from the dead. This, This is... The miracle. Propitiation is the miracle. And and so you've got God's mission, and then the method he's gonna accomplish that mission is is us as his ambassadors, but none of that matters without the miracle. In other words, like, God could desperately want to reconcile all of his enemies to be his friends, And, and he could send us out, and we could deliver this good news to the whole world, but if there was no power behind it, it would be useless. The only thing that makes the mission work, the only thing that makes our method uh, accomplish anything is that there's power behind it. And the only power we've got as Christians is that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And the cross is the perfect picture of how much God loves you. And the resurrection is the perfect picture of how powerful God is to fix you and help you and save you. And nobody else on the whole planet would love you enough to do what Jesus did for you at the cross. And nobody else on the whole planet would be powerful enough to do what Jesus did for you at the tomb. The cross is the perfect picture of love, and the resurrection is the perfect picture of God's power. And you get to see them all mingled together in Jesus' one act of redemption for humanity, where he sets up this plan, and God's going to now enact it. I'm going to reconcile in the world. And to do that, I'm going to send you out to tell him about it, and I'm going to put all my power behind it. This is it. This is it. This is God's plan for your life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, does it this way. John writes, Christ himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. You see these concepts, right? Reconciliation, ambassadors, propitiation. This is the purpose. This is everything. This is everything. This is a culture of redemption. This is what I wanted to wrap with you about today, okay? Like I want, that means I wanted to talk to you about it, okay? That's so what I wanted to talk to you about it today. That, that's next level. If you see what I'm talking about, you can ask me about it later. It might be a prize for you next week if you figure that out. But this is what I wanted to talk to you about today. Now, Paul writes about his own experience with this mission. Let me read it to you, okay? And we're going to come back to this passage again next week when we talk about freedom, Okay, But Paul talks about his experience of becoming Christ's ambassador to give his message of reconciliation to a world with all of God's power and atoning sacrifice behind it. Let me read it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm just going to read you like four or five verses of this. And like I said, we'll dig into it deeper next week. But here's what it says. He says, "'Even though I am a free man with no master,' I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. When, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. you get it? Everyone, every time, Everywhere, this is all I care about. If I'm at home with my family, or if I'm at church on a Sunday morning, if I'm at work on a Monday, taking a testing class on a Wednesday afternoon, if I'm in the gym, or I'm driving in my car, everywhere I go, I'm thinking about this mission. This is it. And if I'm thinking about anything else, I'm falling short of my purpose. And I'm just hoping it'll all bless, bless me and work out by accident. This is the only purpose for your life. And so, whatever I do in word or deed, I do it all for the glory of God. I do it all for this mission. I do it all for this purpose. I live my life completely on purpose. I want to see people redeemed and given the same reconciliation to be turned into God's friend the same way I have been. I want to see people saved. I want to see them avoid the wrath and the anger of God that's going to be poured out on them if they don't receive his free gift of salvation. I want to see them get heaven and God's glory instead of what they really deserve, which is wrath and punishment. I want to see them get grace grace that's only available through Jesus. Is that you? Just get real honest with yourself for a second. Is that your mission? Is that the purpose that drives you each day? Because if not, you're settling for less. Now, I could read you dozens and dozens of verses, but I just want to skim real quick through a bunch of verses that bring up this principle. Let me, let me read them to you. Ready? Let me start. A bunch of different authors, a bunch of different ideas. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 19, Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, said to all of his followers, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. David, in Psalm chapter 96, verse 3, says, Declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Paul wrote in Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Peter wrote in chapter three, verse 15 of 1 Peter, worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told us exactly why he came. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. He didn't come for the healthy people that think they're pretty good. He came for the sickos like me. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.